Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Tom Rath. He is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, How Full Is Your Bucket? as well as Strength Finder 2.0, which was the top-selling nonfiction book worldwide in 2012. But he is back with a new book uh, that has a decidedly different theme called Eat, Move, Sleep, How Small Choices Lead to Big Changes. So, Tom, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. So, in reading and preparing for this interview and reading some of the things that you've said and uh, that others have said about uh, the book, um, would you say that uh, as much as a book, this is a movement uh, for you? Yeah, you know, what I hope to see over the next uh, 10, 20 years in particular is that there are kind of two forces converging at the same time. And one is that we've essentially built a lifestyle here in the United States on an individual level that's not sustainable if we want to live longer and have more energy, and we kind of need to show the rest of the world how to fix that. And I think one of the best ways we do that is one social network and one small work team and one organization at a time. And that's where I've seen the most change over the last quarter century in terms of really turning the tide on smoking and littering and recycling, all kinds of things. So I think we have these small and large organizations that can be um, a very powerful and influential component of uh, fixing this big national problem that we have right now. And it's also um, at the forefront of uh, every CFO's radar screen that I've talked to just because it's not sustainable financially for businesses as well. And then most importantly, you know, each of us as individual workers, we just need to have enough energy to do our best work every day, and most of us don't right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, Generationally, I, I have... Uh four daughters in, in their 20s still. And, you know, generationally, I see those guys coming to work saying, well, you know, are you crazy? I'm not going to go to work for some place that's going to want me to work 12 hours a day. You know, I, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to, you know, work has a very decided role in my life, but it doesn't run my life. You know, that's one of the very positive things that I've seen in real data to support what you've observed there over the last couple of years is that, um, People entering the workforce today, there are two things that make them very different. One is that um, they really have a desire to see that they're a part of an organization that makes a positive contribution to society and improves the overall well-being of its customers, communities, and so forth. So that's one big difference. Um, The second one is that they have much higher expectations in terms of being able to maintain very good relationships with their loved ones and friends while doing a job that they enjoy on a day-to-day basis. So... I do see the generations that enter the workforce over the next 10 or 20 years raising the bar a little bit in in terms of what employers will need to do to recruit and retain people. One of the things you talk about uh, pretty candidly in this book, and and certainly was probably a great deal, I'm guessing, of the motivation for you to take the time and energy to to do the research as thoroughly thoroughly as you did is that uh, that you've actually um, suffered from an illness really your entire life that has been a real challenge for you. Yeah, when I was about uh, 16 years old, I first realized something was wrong because I was starting to lose vision in my left eye, and that turned out to be a series of cancerous tumors that I, uh, over the span of a few years, lost an eye to. And then um, that led the doctors to believe I might also have a very rare genetic disorder that causes cancer to grow throughout the body uh, pretty rapidly over a lifetime. And so as a result of that, I've, I'm currently battling, have been battling pancreatic cancer, kidney cancer, and a host of other 
related cancers over the last 20 years. And so after getting that initial diagnosis, and especially uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, as more and more information emerged on the Internet about all this great medical research showing what we can do to extend our odds of avoiding heart disease and cancer and the like, I've dedicated a good deal of time almost every single day just trying to accumulate as much knowledge as I can about small steps that all of us can take to increase our odds of living longer. But then one of the most important learnings in all that research for me is that even in my extreme case where I have these well-known risks, it's a lot easier for me to make good decisions about what to get when I go out to lunch today because I know that if I eat a light and healthy lunch, I'll have more energy to go out and play with my kids this afternoon or to get more work done later on in the day. This um, particular topic that you write about, particularly as it applies to work, it seems like, you know, they, you can't pick up a magazine these days and they don't, you know, talk about uh, how bad sitting is for you at your at your desk, and um, which is obviously a topic that, that you take on uh, uh, pretty thoroughly in the book. But uh, what, what would you say this book, you know, now that you're done with it, has really added to this topic, which has gotten a little bit noisy, I mean, specifically? Yeah, what I was trying to do, and frankly, the most difficult part of working on this book was trying to narrow down to the most basic or essential elements that a lot of us could start to talk about among work teams and families and the like to say, what are specific things we can do today that will create little changes tomorrow? And so my hope was to essentially synthesize a lot of that noise and research that's out there into very clear steps that people can either uh, do, do two or three things over a 30-day period, uh, take them one at a time, or try and accumulate a bunch of knowledge early on as a part of that. And so my real hope was that it would stimulate some conversations about small ideas that create big changes inside marriages and families. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, work teams in particular, I think that's where right now there's there's a lot of conversation going on between essentially insurers or companies and people who are on the benefits plan in small to mid and large organizations. Unfortunately, there are very few conversations going on inside the big network that is the company from what I've observed. Yeah. You know, and the 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 data is so absolutely clear. Um, I, I've worked with a number of organizations over the years that have really put a high priority on a lot of the things you talk about to the point where they they hire chefs and they hire uh, personal trainers and and things to to pretty much make it part of the culture. Um, and and the you know their their cost of healthcare, you know, complete uh, the, the the decrease in cost in healthcare just completely decreases. Not only that, the 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 fact that people want to talk about coming to work for that company. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I, I don't know that there's enough broad awareness about is the fact that there's a there's a clear business case and ROI for helping for investing a lot of time and money in helping each employee to improve their health and well-being in addition to doing it for all the right reasons. Unfortunately, in a lot of organizations I've spent time with, with, with probably the best of intentions, they've plugged in what are called health risk appraisals and programs designed to reduce cost and risk. And boy, in my, in my opinion, is that the wrong way to frame things? <laughs> right and talk about things for your employee base. You couldn't pick a better way to scare people off if you tried. And so I think that's where it's got to be about how can we share ideas and do things inside our work teams that help us all to have chance of getting better sleep because of our work schedules or moving around a lot more and so forth, instead of it just being the creepy 
benefits department or insurer who's trying to squeeze cost out of every last drop. Well, and, and, and start like rating employees, right? <laughs> Based on, you know, the, right. the amount of obesity <laughs> or something crazy like that. And, that uh, and that's what most programs and incentives are based on today. And yeah. it's, it, I think that's a big challenge is how do you, sure, give people incentive for improving their health, but make it a part of a conversation instead of just kind of carrots and sticks to beat people into losing weight or whatever it might yeah. be. So you did a ton of research and experimentation, quite frankly, to, in, in working with this book. What, 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 what are a couple of things, what are a couple of the big things that you changed uh, in your daily routine? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I learned from a eating standpoint in particular is that I found a bunch of ways to structure my environment in order to make it a lot easier for, for me to make good decisions. So in my home, I, I did a lot of rearranging to make sure that the foods I should be eating, the celery and peanut butter, apples and nuts and things like that are at eye level. They're out on counters. I can see a jar of nuts sitting in front of me right now if I get hungry and need a snack. Um, I started carrying little packs of mixed nuts or carrots around with me when I travel just so I don't stop and get something a lot less healthy in an airport. Right. Um, when I'm out to eat ordering, I've learned to be very conscious about telling a waiter uh, or someone when I'm ordering room service not to bring the basket of bread, not to bring the potatoes, because if they're there, I know I'll eat them. and I don't want to have to expend that willpower when it gets there. So that's probably the most important thing I've learned from a diet standpoint. From an activity standpoint, the big learning for me from all the research is that even if I wake up each morning and exercise for 30 or 60 minutes, there's no way that's going to counteract eight to ten hours of sitting on my rear end. So I've learned that I have an obligation, kind of a responsibility, to make sure that I'm engineering activity back into my days. And so whether I'm on the road and I make sure to get up every 20, 30 minutes or walk around while I'm on a long call or interview, whether I'm at home and writing and editing while I'm walking on a treadmill, I've figured out ways to build at least... 20,000 steps into most days. And so that makes a, that that might make the biggest difference of all the things I've worked on. And then from a sleeping standpoint, I think that's been more of a mind shift for me personally where uh, I grew up in the Midwest in Nebraska and kind of that hardworking uh, work ethic uh, farm culture where it was always uh, a good idea to brag about how you could get by on four hours sleep and you still got a lot of work done or did a good job and whatever you were uh, doing at work that day. But the more I've gotten into this research and tested this myself, it's clear that every extra hour of sleep helps you to get more done and be more effective and creative in what you're doing. You know, I um, heard somebody explain that, and actually he was a, a coach that worked with the executives, and a big part of his was that recovery had to be a big part of what, what you did, uh, sleep being one of those. And, and he really kind of likened it to... Uh, you know, owning your own business or being an executive in a business is, it's, you know, it's a lot like a, a professional athlete, uh, except, you know, a professional athlete, they have game day, and then they have practice days, and then they have rest days. <laughs> and uh, the the traditional, you know, small business owner is pretty much game day every day. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, without intentionally, as you said, you know, making space for, for recovery and, and sleep, uh, you, you really just run yourself down. You know, it's kind of interesting to me. One of the most uh, controversial and I, I think kind of famous studies in the business space for all of us who read business books to talk about is that uh, Kay Anders Erickson study about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And so people right. argue that it's all about practice instead of talent, and I've been caught in those debates time and time again. 
But when I really got back in and looked at some of Kay Anders Erickson's research, what struck me was the other big finding. There were two big findings from that same body of work. The other one is that the best performers across a variety of roles, from musicians to teachers and performers who studied a lot of uh, different professions, they slept significantly longer on average than lower performers. And so I, I might not have the numbers exactly. I don't have them in front of me, but the best performers were sleeping about 8.6 hours on average in the studies per night, whereas if you look at the average American, they're just under seven hours a day on average. Hmm. The um, You talked about this um, topic a little bit when you said you, you, you make it easy, like you carry the stuff, you have the nuts, you have the, you know, you, you outfit your, your kitchen and your office in such a way that it's, it's pretty easy to make the right choices. And there's a New York Times article a couple, um, a couple of years ago that, uh, that identified this thing called decision fatigue. Um, and, I, and I found this really fascinating that, that the very fact of, uh, or the very act of making decisions throughout the day kind of depletes your ability to make them well. So that you know, the end of the day, like you said, when those <clears throat> when that basket of, of bread shows up or or um, the the potato chips or whatever it is, uh, a lot of it is it's not a matter of having willpower. You just pretty much run out of <laughs> you're fatigued. Um, and I think that that idea of really planning for that, understanding that dynamic, and planning for it by having the stuff around you that makes it so you're not making decisions. It's just here it is. Um, I think is really an essential element. Yeah, and it's about, well, the other thing I've learned is, I mean, if you think about how do you set everything up right so that it's actually easy to make a decision to pass on dessert at 7 o'clock in the evening. And that's that's not easy to do, by the right, way. Right, right. But it also starts with little things in the morning where one of the pieces, there's I know there's a lot of controversy on either side of our artificial sweeteners, good for you or bad for you, just in their own right. Yeah. But the fact is, from all the work that I've studied, if you put artificial sweeteners in your coffee or a shake in the morning or whatever it might be and use them throughout the day, even if they're fine for you and you set that debate aside, that leads you to crave more and more sweets and sweet foods throughout the day as each hour goes by. So, I mean, there are things you can do all the way from the setup of your morning coffee that essentially ensure you'll have the right instincts and more willpower to the other point by the time someone comes around and asks you if you want to see a dessert menu at 7 o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Well, and, and and I think one of the th- things that you hit head on, and I think really people are getting more sensible about this, but I think we, you know, this diet mentality is, you know, still rampant. I mean, uh, if you look at the best-selling books every year, um, the top ten, you know, five of them will be some new diet uh, that came along, and um, really, this you you take this diet mentality on um, in a pretty big way. Yeah, I think, you know, if you, if you, I was trying to think about why a majority, you know, if you ask a majority of Americans will say they're on a diet at any given point in time, and yet uh, a majority of Americans are also overweight or obese. Right. And so there's something that's clearly not working despite all the different diets you see out there. And when you step back and think about it conceptually, a diet almost by definition is something that's temporary and you will finish or it will end at some finite point in time. And that's the wrong way to think about a real healthy lifestyle that works for good, in my opinion. Yeah. So I think the challenge is, all that being said, I've, I've read half of those diet books you mentioned just for my own learning because a lot of them have really good ideas and tips about the right things to eat and the right mm-hmm. things to avoid. Mm-hmm. And I do think it, it can be helpful to draw on some of the best elements of the diets that have been the most popular and effective and figure out how you build those ideas 
into something much more sustainable than a three-month or six-month diet to lose weight. You know, um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the issue with food in general is just uh, you think about the the, the social uh, things that are attached to it and and the the cultural things that are attached to to eating and and you know all of all of our you know mothers and grandmothers that that said you know you had to eat this and you had to eat that and you had to eat all of it and um, and you had to eat you know bigger portions and you know all those things that 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 kind of come attached to to food and and I really think that. When I read your chapter, particularly talking about the work lunch, it's almost like you know you, you disc not discount, but you remove the the idea that that's even food that it's it's fuel for <clears throat> for something you have excuse me for something you have to accomplish the rest of the day, and that you just you you look at it like you would strategize about a, your next meeting that you know, you strategize about you know lunch uh, for the day uh, as a piece of you know your overall accomplishment for the day as opposed to uh, even a meal. Yeah, and that's something that I've learned can be effective as a motivator, not only with diet, but um, with things like sleep and activity as well, where I know when I'm traveling and if, I have, if I'm giving a talk real early in the morning after a long flight that not only do I need to make sure I get in in time to get a sound seven or eight hours of sleep, but then if I want to be as sharp and fresh as I could be and be effective in my work that day, I need to get some early morning activity because I... Um, I just have more physical energy, I'm in a better mood, and can do more of a service to the groups I'm talking with and working with that next day. And so starting to connect those reasons, as you mentioned, it's kind of fuel for a good day. I've found that's a much better way for most of us to get motivated instead of saying, well, I have a family risk of heart disease or stroke. Or right, something right, like that. right, yeah. Um, and, and I think anybody who hasn't done it before um, uh, probably underestimates the physical stamina that it takes to get up there on a stage for 90 minutes as well. Absolutely. <laughs> um, how would you suggest, what are some of the, maybe we'll end today with, you know, three or four of your kind of your favorite tips for, um, you, you, you mentioned this idea that it's not enough to get, a, you know, get to the gym four times a week and do your, your workout, um, you know, how do you suggest people get more movement into their work? Have you found some things that, uh, that, that have habits that have been easy to develop that, that maybe you want to share? Yeah, I think from a, from a movement standpoint, the, at a basic level, people need to think about how can you get up, whether it's to get up and stretch, take a quick break to get a cup of coffee, go to the restroom, talk to a friend who works nearby, um, go for a quick walk at lunch, anything you can do every 20 or 30 minutes to get up and moving. I might have thought originally that that would break your concentration if you're working on something focused like writing or editing mm-hmm. or a lot of the things I do. And as I dug into the research, it turns out the opposite's true, where yeah. even your mind needs that little refresher just like your body does. So that's the most tactical level. I think at a, at a broader level over time, especially, I think small businesses are in a very unique place to do this, by the way. They need to re-engineer their working environment so that people can both sit and stand and ideally walk or pedal or do something else, at least during a portion of their day. I, it's hard for me to explain how much more energy I have on days when I'm walking and working or pedaling while I get work done like I'm doing right now. It's, it's a whole different level of energy, especially in the afternoon, so I think we've got to rethink that overall over the next decade or so. So, so do you have the, the, the pedal bike, or did you just uh, create some sort of... Uh do-it-yourself or <laughs> model that you hack some things together? 
Yeah, on the treadmill, it was a do-it-yourself where I had a treadmill in the basement that wasn't getting used anywhere near as much as it should have been. And so when I started working on the book, I went to Home Depot and put a two-by-four across yeah. it to place my keyboard on. And I'm still using that regular to this day, and it just works wonders. And then I realized that even when I was getting off of the treadmill, I was sitting in the chair too long and got stuck there. So I tried one of these relatively inexpensive. They're about $200 on Amazon for these pedal desks that you put your laptop on. And that's what I use, for example, right now when I'm on calls and interviews because it doesn't make any mechanical noise. And, I mean, even if it's a real investment in your workspace at a couple hundred mm-hmm. dollars, mm-hmm. I can almost guarantee that that will pay off in terms of energy and your health and how your body's feeling a year later. So you, I, I don't, I don't, you're pedaling right now. I don't hear any physical sound. I don't, you're, you're not panting or anything. So it, uh, it well, yeah, I, I mean, you could, that's the trick is to go at a slow pace. Yeah. I've been pedaling at a slow pace the whole time we've been talking. When I walk and edit or walk and write, I can type and use a mouse or a trackpad just as effectively as long as it's under about two miles an hour. Yeah. So there, there are little shortcuts about you don't, you don't get to the point where you're sweating. I could do it in a suit without breaking a sweat. And there, there are some little tricks around it you'll learn, but I encourage people to explore that, even if it's just for their home office, because I think you'll see how it can um, catch on and be a bigger part of your life over time. Well, and, and you know, a really easy fix, especially now that most people use wireless phones uh, anymore, is, is to, you know, when you're having that conversation on a phone call, to, to just walk around while you do it. Um, is, is yeah, that was where I started, was just putting a headset on and, walking in circles. I probably look crazy. I was walking in circles around my little office. And my <laughs> colleagues would walk by and wonder what I was doing. But it, even that made, made a difference out of the gate. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for, for stopping by. Eat, move, sleep. How small choices lead to big changes. And I, I will tell you, tell you um, and, and please expand on this if you'd like, but uh, eatmovesleep.org has some incredible um, resources there. Uh, I've, you've really done, uh, I think, a great thing by putting all of the notes and references uh, on, a, on a page as well so that when you cite uh, some study about sugar or something, you know, people have the, the ability to really find that uh, pretty easily. Uh, uh, so, so I would encourage you not only to get this book, but obviously spend time at eatmovesleep.org. Yeah, thanks so much. I, we also put a free kind of assessment and plan for 30 days up there that whether people have the book or not, it's free for everyone to take and get kind of a personalized plan around. So I'd encourage people to check that out as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tom. And I've enjoyed all of your work and uh, really, really big supporter of this book. I appreciate you stopping by. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Bye.